This episode of New Politics was recorded on Friday the 19th of February, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, more allegations of sexual abuse in the Liberal Party. This time it's a rape at the Parliament House in Canberra. Is the moon landing the same as the arrival of a crate of medicine at Sydney Airport? Probably not. And the government fabricates yet another billion dollar tax. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. Hip-hop legend David The Truth Lewis, your boy. It's an issue that keeps appearing within the Liberal Party, and this time there's been a serious incident of sexual assault in Parliament House, where a female staffer was raped by an up-and-coming Liberal Party operative. It has been alleged that Brittany Higgins was raped in the office of the Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds. The incident occurred a few weeks before the 2019 federal election, and it seems like there was a cover-up of grand proportions. Steam cleaning of the office where the incident occurred, pressure on the staffer to protect the reputation of the Liberal Party in the lead-up to the federal election. And it seems that there were many senior people within the government, including the Prime Minister, who knew exactly what had happened, but were hoping that the whole incident would just disappear. We can point to these kinds of incidents arising in all political parties, but it seems that it's been more prevalent within the Liberal and National parties. There's the allegations against Barnaby Joyce of sexually harassing prominent women at political events. In 2018, when Scott Morrison first became Prime Minister, there were the revelations that the Liberal Party was rife with sexism and bullying of women. And then there were the reports of Ministers Christian Porter and Alan Tudge having affairs with young female staffers. Scott Morrison did say that this incident is a wake-up call, but that's exactly what he said back in 2018 when the claims of sexism within the Liberal Party were made, and that's exactly what he said last year when his ministers were having affairs with staffers. The Liberal Party have started backgrounding against the current partner of Brittany Higgins, suggesting that as a former public servant he holds a grudge against the government and this is all his fault. This is an ongoing problem within the Liberal Party and whenever incidents like this occur, Morrison just keeps saying that these are all wake-up calls, but it seems like he's just not getting the message, nor is anyone else within the Liberal Party. Why wouldn't he have a grudge against the Liberal Party, for one thing? His wife, or his partner, I'm sorry, had all kinds of horrible things done to her while working for them. That, to me, would seem to be reasonable grounds for a grudge. It doesn't seem to me to be a good thing to be backgrounding him. The crime was committed against her. It's irrelevant. The government's been caught out again on these types of attitudes where the image of the government is more important than doing the right thing. It's not unprecedented, but I don't think it's ever been so blatant as now. I said yesterday in the Parliament that we had to listen to Brittany. I have listened to Brittany. Jenny and I spoke last night and she said to me, you have to think about this as a father first. What would you want to happen if it were our girls? Jenny has a way of clarifying things, always has. And so as I've reflected on that overnight and listened to Brittany and what she had to say, There are a couple of things here we need to address. The first of those is, it shatters me that still in this day and age, that a young woman 
can find herself in the vulnerable situation that she was in. So there's Scott Morrison. It seems like he's calling up on the advice from his wife, Jenny Morrison. And it always seems to be the case that whenever Scott Morrison has any feminine issues to deal with, he always calls up on Jenny and the girls. And there he was doing it again during the week. But does a Prime Minister really need to have daughters to understand how serious the issue of rape is? You'd hope not. I mean, it's not as if your only contact with women in the world is just if you're married or have daughters. There are women in his cabinet. There are women who are senior public servants. There are women who are members of the Liberal Party. It seems to me to be a an outdated issue, and an issue that's been outdated for as long as I've been an adult, at least. It's, it's like all the feminist work of the 60s and 70s has been erased. And of course, they want that. They don't like strong, independent women. They don't like women who earn the same amount of money as they do. They don't like women who don't submit to what they think. They believe they're superior to women. Morrison is really just projecting his own outdated attitude and unethical attitudes too. Trying to cover it up is just appalling. Generally, we recognise and understand that Prime Ministers have knowledge of every particular issue that arises within their party, and and they may not have the direct knowledge or receive direct knowledge or the direct information about that, but they'll receive the information through their party whips, through their key advisors, and we can't be 100% sure about this, but there would have been a number of people within the media and also the Labor opposition that would have known that something had happened back in 2019 without having all of the full details. Just a couple of days ago, the ABC journalist, Laura Tingle, she estimated that around 30 people within the Prime Minister's entourage would have known about the incident back in 2019. Former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, He's also claimed that it would have been impossible for Scott Morrison to not have known about the incident. And if we have a look at the the timeline, the alleged incident occurred on March the 23rd, 2019. And the office where the incident occurred, it was steam cleaned the following day. That's March the 24th. The president of the Senate, Scott Ryan, he was informed about the incident on March the 27th. The Speaker of the House, Tony Smith, he found out about the incident on April the 8th. Scott Morrison then visited the Governor-General to prorogue Parliament on April the 10th to call the election for May the 18th, 2019. Now, if we take into account that roughly 30 people would have known about this, according to Laura Tingle, and if we take into account what Malcolm Turnbull said about the fact that he believes that Scott Morrison would have known about this, for all of the time of the 2019 election campaign, there was Scott Morrison sculling the beers, placing the empty glass on his head, for all of those times that he was shearing a sheep, for all of those times that he was riding around in those stupid tractors, for all of the time that he was playing in those bingo halls on the south coast of New South Wales, he would have been aware that a woman had been raped in Parliament House, yet for political expediency, this was all hushed up and ignored. This is why I think he has to resign. The thing that kept coming back to me was Eddie Maguire at Collingwood. I don't really know enough about AFL to comment too much, but whether Eddie Maguire was guilty or not of racism, he represented a system that needed to change, and he couldn't be the agent of that change, so he had to go. Uh, Whether he felt that was right or not is irrelevant. And it's the same with the Prime Minister. He oversees a system that accepts rape as a occupational hazard. 
some of the things that I think they tried and quickly withdrew was that she was drunk, like that's got anything to do with it, that she dressed inappropriately, like that's got anything to do with it. Now, that, now I'll be fair, they quickly withdrew them. But the fact that this stuff started circulating a little bit, I think, says a lot about the attitude. And this is why he's clearly unfit to be prime minister. Now, we've been saying this for, for years since before he was prime minister, that he's unfit to be prime minister. But if anything demonstrates it to even people who thought that he was fit and doing a good job, this is the incident that should demonstrate to nearly everyone that he's not up to the job. And politically, we can see why the government chose to keep all of this very, very quiet at the time and covered it all up. Morrison was running out of time to call that election constitutionally, May the 18th, 2019. That would have been the last date that he could have held that election. And you can imagine that it would have been political dynamite if news about a rape at Parliament House had been revealed a few weeks before he announced that election date. It would have swamped out all of their key messages, would have swamped out all the news that they were trying to put out during the election campaign. And Without any doubt at all, Morrison would have lost that 2019 election if this information had been revealed at the time. So that's why this was all covered up. And of course, this is all very, very questionable behaviour. But you'd think that at least if a political decision was made that this was all going to be covered up and kept very quiet, at least a political party should offer the as much support as possible to the victim. But in this case, the Liberal Party didn't even have the decency to do this. The ethical thing to do, and I'm, I'm not standing up here as a paragon of virtuous virtuosity by any standards, but the ethical thing to do would have been to have called the police, had the alleged perpetrator arrested. I understand that a lot of people in Canberra know who it is and that uh, he was moved into a, another job with the IPA. I don't know that, that, that all of those details are true. But I do know that a lot of people know who he is and that he was moved aside into another job where presumably he has had the opportunity again. Whether he's taken that opportunity or not is another thing. I don't know who was. Apparently there's been a name floating around that I want to see him go to court and I don't want to jeopardise the trial. I want to see the perpetrator tried and jailed, as I'm sure everyone does. I think it shows a moral vacuum at the heart of the Liberal Party. For all the talk of Christianity, for all the talk of high standards, and Morrison had the high to talk about high standards. After this, empty talk, empty rhetoric. Morrison was clearly rattled in Parliament, and and on these types of issues which require empathy and human understanding, he, he flounders because it's against his propensity to attack and seek political opportunities at every opportunity. And and I noticed that this was the case after the Christchurch massacre in 2019, where clearly it was a situation where he couldn't go on the attack or score political points, and he really had difficulties dealing with that. It's the same issue here, where an issue required understanding and, and emotional competence from the Prime Minister, but he just didn't know where to go. And we have to base our opinions on the strong view that Malcolm Turnbull had, that Scott Morrison would have known about the incident. And and therefore, we have to look at the possibility that Morrison has misled Parliament. Now, there's a couple of factors involved here. First of all, there has to be solid evidence that Morrison did know about the incident. He maintains that he only heard about it on Monday. That was just a few days ago. I've trawled through his statements in Parliament during the week, and it's not entirely clear that he's directly misled Parliament. 
and of course there has to be solid evidence that Morrison did know about the incident back in 2019, but if we do indeed find out that he did know about it far earlier than he's revealed so far, what are the political ramifications for him? I think there's been a lot of semantics to ensure that he hasn't misled Parliament, but also to ensure that he hasn't put himself in it. The thing is, is that this is a no-win situation. If he knew it was disgusting and appalling and he should resign, if he didn't know it was disgusting and appalling and incompetent and he should resign, he's stuck between the allegorical rock and a hard place. And I also think he's losing the support of News Corp. It was News Corp who broke the story, Samantha Maiden, an excellent piece of journalism for such a terrible thing to have happened. Journalists have resigned from News Corp for seeing their work not published in the end. Anthony Clan, the, the journalist, springs to mind as someone who'd done a whole lot of work on uh, some kind of corruption and senior editors pulled it. So they could have pulled this story and they didn't, which I found interesting. I think there are some people on the backbench with integrity and who believe in the system and you never know what's going to happen. There's a part of me that holds out hope that enough will be outraged by the treatment of a young woman, that they will want something done and something serious done about it. Of course, the scapegoats will be fed to the crowd first. I think Linda Reynolds is being primed to be thrown under a bus, a la Bridget McKenzie. I suspect one or two staffers and security guards on the night who said that they were there on the night and they'll be sacked. Whether that actually happens, but that announcement will go through. Whether that will be enough, I don't know. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, has the eagle landed in Australia? Unlike the moon landing, we really don't think it has. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Out control, both auto descent, engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger Twain. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. The Eagle has landed. I am pleased to be able to tell Australians that shortly after midday, the first shipment of Pfizer vaccines arrived in Australia. They have touched down. Uh, they are currently being secured. And uh, the advice that I have is that 142,000 doses... The Eagle has landed were the words used by Neil Armstrong when he landed on the moon in 1969. It's also a movie about a fictional plot by the German army to kidnap Winston Churchill during the Second World War. And that's almost as fictional as the announcement by the health minister, Greg Hunt, that the COVID-19 vaccine program has already commenced. 
For much of the past year, the federal government has been making announcement after announcement, making it seem like the vaccines were either available right now or would be available soon, and that Australia was at the front of the queue for the delivery of the vaccine. In September last year, there was a sketchy announcement about the provision of 85 million doses from AstraZeneca, when in fact it wasn't a deal at all, it was just a memorandum of understanding. In November, there was the announcement where Greg Hunt said that 50 million vaccines had been secured. The Prime Minister actually said the government had secured 140 million vaccines. There was another announcement in February of 10 million vaccines, which essentially was the repeat of their November announcement. All along, the federal government has given the impression that these vaccines have actually been acquired, but the reality is quite different. During the week, 140,000 vaccines arrived at Sydney Airport, and that's 0.1% of those 140 million vaccines that the government has promised. You're not going to get very much herd immunity from that. So far... 190 million COVID vaccines have been administered all around the world, and it seems like Australia is not at the front of that queue that the government kept on promising us. People were pointing out goat herders in Morocco had got the vaccine. Now, of course, there's no issue with anyone getting the vaccine, but goat herders in Morocco are at lower risk than, say, a quarantine worker in Sydney or Melbourne. It's another major rollout, and there's been a whole range of these, submarines, NBN, the vaccine that have been botched. They couldn't run chook lottery at the local club, it seems. Australia has been lucky in that we've had good governments in Queensland and Victoria and Western Australia, but it hasn't spread throughout the country like it has in England and America. New South Wales government has been exceptionally lucky. It's clearly not a a priority to get the vaccine here from its uh, suppliers. Again, a government that's unfit for purpose and should and really needs to be removed somehow. Now, I've been monitoring these government announcements since August last year, and if you add them all up, it's almost like Australia should have about a billion vaccines in its stocks. And for a country that has a population of 26 million, I think there's a vast gap between the announcements and the delivery. Up until a few days ago, Australia actually had zero vaccines in stock. You mentioned that goat herder in Morocco receiving the vaccine. I'm not sure what the case is in Morocco, but certainly in many European countries and the United States, there is a need for them to receive the vaccine first. There's absolutely no issue about that. Coronavirus has been out of control in those areas and it's ethical and it's fair that they're the first ones to receive it. Australia, relatively speaking, it's actually had a very low amount of coronavirus cases. The, The threat, of course, is still very real and it could easily spiral out of control, as we've seen in certain parts of Australia. But the need to have the vaccine here right now isn't as important as it is in other parts of the world. But it's the federal government that's been making all of these promises. It kept on making those announcements for political purposes, of course, but it just has not delivered. And of course, the media was at Sydney Airport to take all of the happy snaps of the crates of coronavirus vaccine vials being docked at the tarmac. But again, this is all part of the media spin cycle. And yet another case of the federal government not delivering on its promises. I think their aim is to look like they're doing stuff when they're not. Uh, I think the aim is to distract. And I think we're going to get a lot of vaccine information over the next few days as more and more revelations about who knew what about Uh, Brittany Higgins comes out, but not a lot's getting done. And I think 
you know, that's typical of this government. Well, there is that old adage within business and service delivery that you under-promise and you over-deliver. But this is a government that, that does the reverse of that. It, it keeps on over-promising whatever the case is, whether it's coronavirus vaccines or the NBN or budget surpluses, whatever the case is, and it just doesn't deliver. So it over-promises and under-delivers. This will end up being a problem for the, for the government. Like it's, it's like the boy who cried wolf. How many times can you keep on making these announcements and spinning the news before the public wises up to what's going on? I think, too, they overestimate the short memory. Like, you can probably announce things two or three times and, you know, catch the people who didn't hear it the first couple of times. But after a while, everybody's heard it and everybody's waiting, not for the announcement, but for the action. And when that doesn't come, you're in a lot of problems. Seems like the the timetable of the vaccines that the government has got, that seems to accord with the speculation of of an August-September early election as well and and if they've got this rollout happening every week or two there will be an announcement to go with that as well like look at the fantastic work that the federal government is doing now we've got the rollout happening in new south wales now we've got the rollout happening in victoria now we've got it happening in south australia tasmania queensland west australia and it's probably going to be a case where they'll roll out the vaccines in particular marginal seats as well And that might sound quite cynical, but based on the behaviour of the government in the past with all of its sports rorts and different funding areas that have gone directly into marginal seats, this would not surprise me. I'm wondering why New South Wales first. Partly I think it's the safe Liberal government. Partly, though, I wonder if they know that the virus is bubbling under here and need to get it here so it doesn't break out. This is health department. I, I don't know. I don't want to step on the toes of experts. But the us and them philosophy of we give people who will vote for us this stuff. And also we know that they will stamp it with Liberal Party logos as well. They've already been caught out doing this last week, but it will be the Australian vaccination brought to you by the Liberal Party, not by the Australian government. Uh, There was a joke of, uh, you know, you have to prove you voted Liberal to get a dose. It's a joke, but it's not that far from the truth, it seems. The other factor here is that the government has outsourced all of the difficult issues to the states. So there's the issue of hotel quarantine and management of overseas arrivals within Australia. That's all been outsourced to the respective states all around Australia. So that means that if there's ever an outbreak, the federal government takes no responsibility for this. This is all sheeted home to the respective premiers of those states and... Yeah, so it seems like they've taken the control of the easy part of making the deals to secure the vaccines. But then if the problems with the rollout of the vaccines then occur, they can always blame the states. They can always blame the the respective state premiers. And especially if it's a, the Labor state, such as Queensland, Victoria or West Australia. If we look at their behaviour in the past, initially when the coronavirus first came out, they put out that message that we're all in this together. But obviously we're not in all of this together. They started attacking Labor states last year. There's no reason why they won't start blaming Labor states if there's a problem with the vaccine delivery. Now, quarantine is clearly a federal government responsibility under the Australian Constitution. I'm wondering if down the track we won't see a high court case. Uh, And what we do know, the current federal government is very good at losing court cases. But I'm wondering if Victoria and Queensland and Western Australia might take 
their case to the High Court for the botching of quarantine, given that the state governments were never supposed to be part of it and that they were lumped with it and it's cost them a lot of money and, of course, they're dealing with breakouts, which, for the most part, they're dealing with very effectively. But I wonder if, at some point, they will take well, this federal government to the High Court for, for a compensation where the federal government will have to pay for their botched quarantine. Essentially, what the public wants is that they want these issues resolved. They want vaccines released to the public as, as efficiently as possible and as early as possible. As far as the blame game is concerned, who, who does what or who is responsible for the issue, whether it's a federal government responsibility or a state government or territory government responsibility, they just want these issues resolved. They want the vaccine as soon as possible. So I guess that's something that can be left for another day. But again, it gets back to the cynicism that that I have about how this federal government behaves. Like It will look for political opportunities at every opportunity. And that's probably going to be an ongoing problem with the management of the pandemic and with the rollout of the vaccines. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the $20 billion tax that doesn't exist. Last week, the Labor Party announced a policy reform for workers in the gig economy to make guarantees of superannuation payments, minimum wages and leave payments for contractors and a portable entitlement system when people move from one job to another. On the surface, the Labor Party proposal seems like a good idea. The gig economy is a cesspool of insecure work, underpayments, exploitation and poor working conditions. The types of companies that do benefit from the existing arrangements, Uber, Deliveroo and Menulog, although they've suggested that the nature of this work, in their opinion, is supplementary income and it's not meant to be a full-time wage, they haven't rejected the idea. But that didn't stop the Attorney-General, Christian Porter, completely misrepresenting Labor's policy as a $20 billion tax on business. And it was a message that was amplified by the media. Policy cost. Is it a $20 billion tax on business or, or cost on business, let's call it, if we don't want to use the very uh, you know, contentious word of tax on business, as the Attorney General says? Yeah, do you know whose policy he was talking about? I, I saw that. It was, he was Yours, describing he a policy that's not ours. OK, well, so how much would yours cost? It's not in the speech tonight. No, no, but how what, much what I'm saying is what we saw from Christian Porter in that media conference was absolutely next level weird. He invented a policy that's not ours, then got a cost about it, and then got really worked up about the cost of the policy he'd invented. He's describing something that's not in the speech, that's not in the announcement, that's not our policy, and he's really angry about it. Well, good on him, but I've got to say, that media conference, he either knew he was lying or the bloke's just lost it. The, the policy okay. he was describing in no way represents anything that we're announcing right, so tonight or that we've decided okay, on. OK, so you're saying it's inaccurate. A big problem is that the media usually takes up the talking points from the Liberal Party government and from big business 
And there's no counter perspectives put forward in the media. If Christian Porter claims that the proposal is a $20 billion tax on business, why doesn't anyone in the media point out that keeping the existing arrangements in place is a $20 billion tax on workers? Again, this goes back to my last point about that they, they learnt the trade at university in student politics where the stakes were so low as to be negligible. They will take an easy phrase and bash that through the media, most of the media will pick it up uncritically and say, oh, yes, there's $20 billion tax on business. Oh, it's going to kill the doom and gloom. The sky is falling. It's Armageddon, but not the good type. You know, on and on it goes. Gig economy, of course, suits the Liberal government because people get paid less. They don't pay super. They, they mightn't pay tax, but they're paying GST on everything anyway, so they're happy with that. There's no real coverage in terms of workers' compensation or or injury insurance or what have you. There were four Uber Eats riders killed in a week about a month ago in separate incidents. That was very sad, very tragic. It highlighted the problem with this type of food delivery. The more you deliver, of course, the, the more you get paid, the faster you can deliver something, and so they start to take risks. And sometimes these risks just don't pay off. And you've probably been in a car where an Uber Eats guy has, uh, you know, swerved between you and the car in front and you've missed them not by not very much. And it's because getting that meal there quickly means they can get another meal or two in, in that hour and up their hourly rate. And, of course, people have been sacked for being too slow as well. There's, I saw a case where he was, the, the guy was just let go. Because he was, too, he hadn't been told that he was too slow, that he had to up his rate. He was just let go because he wasn't delivering fast enough. And there's no job protection. If Deliveroo or Uber Eats or any of those decided, no, we're not doing it this way anymore. We're going to cut your pay and cut your hours and put half of you off. There's no recourse. A non-unionized workforce. I don't know that there's a union that they can really join. And if they do, they get sacked. It's this awful American Ayn Randian model that entrenches the status quo rather than helps people out of the hole they're in. I think one of the big misconceptions is that it's it's only people doing it for supplementary income or students who are, uh, you know, working their way through uni. And certainly those, you know, that is part of it. But a lot of people are doing it as their major source of income. The way that Christian Porter has been presenting this $20 billion tax on business idea, that's a tactic that was taken from the 2019 election campaign where the Liberal National Party, they exploited a misunderstanding of the franking tax credit system and they turned that into the idea of a retirees tax, death tax and other forms of mysterious taxes. So it's obvious that this is the same technique that they're they're using again and they'll probably try it out again as well and keep doing it. It's just a question of whether will this tactic and strategy work again? And, and of course, they'll do their best. They've already started releasing a series of misleading advertisements on Facebook. But based on what's happened over the past few days with the disappearance of Facebook from, from many Australian screens, maybe we might not see too many of these sorts of advertisements. The economy works best when wealth is distributed among a greater range of people. The economy was at its best in the post-war years from 1945 till about 1975. Wages were high, credit was easier to get in some circumstances, 
employment was almost full and I mean 98.7% of people had a job full-time after 75. Now they blame the oil shock but really it was that's also when your uh, neoliberal economists start to gain influence. You get the rise of Howard in Australia, 77. Reagan in the States gets elected in 1980, but that type of thinking had started about 75. Thatcher becomes opposition leader in Britain in 75. So it, it becomes that shift changes things, and the oil is used as an excuse to, to put this type of change through. Now, the gig economy is bad. There's no long-term career path. You can go from driver to senior driver, presumably. A lot of it is based on arbitrary uh, feedback from people who may not want to give you good feedback for what have you. It just doesn't work. Well, I guess there's no clear pathway from being an Uber driver to then becoming the CEO of Uber itself. But it's evident that there does need to be reform within the gig economy. That's pretty obvious. And it's unclear exactly how that's going to occur. Like it won't it won't be under a Liberal Party government. That, that's pretty clear because they, this is the sort of work opportunities that, that, that they want for the pretty much the entire workforce that whenever there's work available for you that's when you go into work if there's no work available to you well you don't turn up that's how they want to set up uh, workplace reforms within Australia obviously Uber is going to be here for some time Deliveroo, Menulog, all of these other providers will be Airtasker they'll be around for, for, for some time so it's probably going to have to be some sort of tech solution where gig workers are paid a sum that includes all of their entitlements and the bits are skimmed off that go in automatically into separate entitlement accounts. So there's probably a, a tech solution to all of this. All of these are tech companies, of course, like it's mainly app-driven, it's uh, organised through the internet. So there has to be some sort of technological solution to, to this to be worked through as well. Yeah, Amazon got into rightly a lot of trouble by using the money that people paid their delivery people tips to. They ended up using that to fund a pay rights, which was not the point of the tips. The tips were to go directly to your delivery person. Um, they didn't do that. Jeff Bezos stepped down and moved across to executive chair or something and they put in a new CEO. There's a certain type of business that if it can exploit and rip off, it will. And this is the type of business that the government encourages. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.